0: Father in heaven, now we pray that you would take our minds, that they may be consecrated to you, given to you, and that you would use them and fill them. And Father, you would transform us by the renewing of our minds, that we might become conformed to the image of Christ, even as we follow after him. In this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to First Peter in chapter three. First Peter in chapter three. I want to begin reading with verse seventeen, and read through chapter four, verse six. First Peter, chapter three, verse seventeen. Please hear the word of God. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the Spirit the way God does. We began this passage last Sunday and identified, I think, uh, its theme, which is readily accessible at least to identification. And that is that God wills, on various occasions, the suffering of his people for the sake of righteousness. God wills on various occasions the suffering of his people for the sake of doing good, for the sake of of righteousness. Um, That I take from verse 17 that says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 19 of chapter 4 says, Similar thing, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator uh, while doing good. And while that is fairly accessible to us, I think at least in terms of our understanding, uh, this is a very difficult passage, and a rather dense one. For instance, uh, verse 19, Uh, speaking of Jesus, Peter writes, in which, that is, in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. You wonder, when did Jesus do that? And where did he go to meet these spirits in prison? And what did he say? Then in verse 21, he relates all this to baptism. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And we've always been taught that baptism doesn't really save us, so we have to ask the question, how, in what sense does baptism baptism save us. In fact, Martin Luther, when he came across these verses in 1 Peter, uh, said this, he said, A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So I don't know if you like Martin Luther generally, but I think we all have to have some sense of agreement with him on that one. But then Peter goes on in chapter 4 and verse 1, in the middle of verse 1, he says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And we wonder, who's he talking about? Is he talking about Jesus that he just said has suffered in the flesh? But if, if he is, why does Jesus need to cease from sin since Jesus has never sinned? And if he's talking about us, how is it that we continue to sin if something has happened that would cause us to cease from sinning? And then, of course, verse 6 of that chapter, he says, For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they, may, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So we wonder who are they, these dead people, who in some time, perhaps while they were living, received the gospel. And w- w- what is Peter getting at? And so my initial inclination when I come across a passage like this is to skip it. I just want you to feel my pain. (laughs) But there's this thing in me that says, I need to be comforted and encouraged by the things which God tells me in the way that he tells me. And so, somehow, I need to get around the fact that the life of Noah is to give me some sense of comfort and encouragement and support and strength in suffering for righteousness' sake. And the baptism should give me a sense of comfort and strength and courage in suffering for righteousness' sake. And there needs to be some sense of courage given to me for suffering for righteousness' sake to know that whosoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And so I I need to somehow, I think, get around these passages, not around them as to go and skirt them, but get my head and heart around them and these passages around me so that I can think with the logic of God. Does that make sense to you? You Some things that God says to us strike us as really odd. We wonder, what does he mean by that? Why is he using that? As an illustration, why why is he telling me about that right here? And when I don't know that and I don't get that, that really troubles me. Because I think, here's something from God and I'm not following. Now, who's right here? I I think it must be God. And, And I think rather than me saying, God, this doesn't make sense, could you reword this? That I need to say, okay, what do you mean? What's going on here? How can I really understand this? And I do this with more humility than I'm sure you can even imagine. Uh, to try to get around this my mind around this this passage, but as we began this to, to understand something about about suffering for righteousness' sake, Peter says in chapter four verse one he says therefore since, uh, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking' He's saying so important is this way of thinking, this way of understanding suffering for the sake of righteousness is that you need to arm yourselves with it. That is, this is like armor, this way of thinking. If we don't think this way, he's saying you're not going to be ready, you're not going to be prepared. The enemy is going to be able to take pot shots at you. And so when suffering for righteousness sake comes to you, you won't be ready, you won't be prepared, you'll be vulnerable so it seems to be very important that I need to understand how Noah and baptism and ceasing from sin and these dead people how all that fits into play so that I can be ready so that when suffering comes because I'm following Christ I don't falter and we know some about this I mean Peter's been laying this out and we've reviewed this time and time again because it seems so thematic uh, in Peter's letter but in chapter 2 in verse 12 for instance he says to these people he says keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Meaning, that because we live in a world that isn't Christian, that doesn't believe as we believe in the person of Christ, that they will actually look upon us as we're living in a way trying to please God and refer to us as evildoers. We see that in the context uh, of our world today as we try to stand up for righteousness in the area of sexuality, for instance. That we're being called intolerant and bigots and and really evil. That that expression has been used. That because we kind of embrace a lifestyle, whether it be in immorality among heterosexuals or immorality in homosexual behavior, since we can't embrace that, we're referred to as the evil ones. Peter knew that as well in chapter 2 and verse 15. He writes, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We must understand that as we live our lives following after Christ, that we're going to be misunderstood. That those who do not follow Christ will not understand us that will cause them to say things about us in, in a sense, if I could use this phrase, innocently. That is, they think they've evaluated this correctly and they think we're just idiots because of, of, of just their reference point. So we're going to have to take that. That's going to be true coming to us in chapter 3 and verse 9. Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. He's saying, there are people who are going to speak evil against you, going to revile you. That is to say evil things against you because we're believers. Jesus said, you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. You see, for the sake of Christ, that even when they revile you and say false things against you on account of me, Jesus says. I mean, he's prepping us for this. In chapter 4, what I read in verse 4, says, With respect to this, that is, living a lifestyle that believers would opt out of, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. I mean, Christians have experienced such, uh, all the way from elementary school on up. I mean, our elementary school children report back to me from time to time or to Seth and our children's ministry people. My own children have had the experience of being in class and and, and to say something that they learned in Sunday school and even other children kind of look down at them about that. Or others have opted out in high school or junior high school of various lifestyles and in college. And others have ostracized you. You aren't quite... In the in crowd, if you weren't able to go along with that particular lifestyle, or fraternity guys have said they're ostracized from some of their fraternity brothers because on weekends they simply don't go out as their fraternity brothers do and so forth and so on. They don't live the same kind of lifestyle. And there are hits taken because of that. We understand that we're maligned for these stands. You know it, perhaps in your neighborhood, perhaps around your offices, maybe in the context of your own family. Where your family engages in various behaviors and you can't because you're a follower of Christ. And it's not that you're trying to live an obnoxious life or an irritating life to them. If you could do anything, and you do anything you possibly can to to, to, to divert attention even, but yet simply because you can't go along with the behavioral patterns of people in your own family, you know what they say about you because you're following after Christ. Peter says that's going to happen. Chapter 4 and verse 14, he says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, then so we can receive insults for following after Christ. We, it appears, still have had it relatively easy in America. As Clay was praying about the persecuted church, we do understand there will be people today probably, who named the name of Christ to be killed because of that. And there are people throughout the centuries for whom that has been true. We see that in the context of the Gospel, even it has progressed in the book of Acts, that there was suffering on behalf of those who took it to various places. We understand that even in Paul's life, he began as Saul of Tarsus, as the, uh, one of the persecutors of the church, and then received persecution, uh, even himself. And he was one who said in his own work that he filled up that which was lacking in the afflictions of Christ, Not that any dying suffering of Christ was insufficient, but he said here something that needs to, the body of Christ needs to to, to be afflicted as well as we go out into the world and we press against these countries which are closed and these minds which are closed and these hearts which are closed, we're likely to receive suffering. And so Peter says, if suffering for righteousness' sake is the will of God for you and it will be for all of us at various times, some perhaps more than others, He says you need to be armed, you need to be ready, you need to be prepared for when that happens. He says I want you to arm yourself with this way of thinking. Last week we just looked at a couple of pieces of this. One is to realize that it is God's will. That if you're suffering for righteousness sake, if you're suffering for doing good, uh, that's God's plan for you. Don't, Don't think it isn't. Don't think you must be doing something wrong to displease Him. But that's God's will. Suffering, that will be the lot for Christians, suffering for doing good, suffering for righteousness sake. That's how Jesus understood his own life. He understood that his suffering was the will of God. And then we realized that the suffering of Jesus was such that it brought us to God. There was productive suffering, if you will. It was intentional on God's part. He had a plan for it. And the plan for Jesus' suffering, of course, as he suffered in the flesh, meaning he took his sins, I'm sorry, he took our sins upon himself and died and was resurrected. And through that suffering, he draws us, brings us to the Father by taking away the hostility that God has for us and by pouring his love through this loving act in us and bringing us, reconciling us to God. And in a similar way, our suffering, we walked last week, and I have time to review all of that, walked last week, can be used by God as well to draw other people to him. Not in the same sense, because our suffering isn't atoning. If I suffer for righteousness' sake, uh, it doesn't pay for anyone's sins as Jesus' suffering did. But it does cause people to realize how valuable Christ is. Who are these people who are willing to suffer for following after this one named Jesus? What hope do they really have? And curiosity wells up that they at least have to ask us, tell me about the hope that is in you. Why would anybody live like this? And take this when all you would have to do is renounce this Jesus and and we'd be friends and everything would be well. And so they ask us about this hope that is in us and so so our suffering draws even others to Christ. But then, you see, all of this reminds Peter of Noah. They just go... Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, putting to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I'm tracking. We're doing really well here. And then he says, in which, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, we brought safely through the water. He said, listen, if you want to be armed, if you want to be strengthened to suffer for righteousness' sake, think about Noah. Okay. What is there about Noah to think about? Well, think about Noah. Noah's situation. You can read about this in Genesis 6 through 9. I don't have time to do that. You know, if I did have time, I would read it to you. It's wonderful to read Scripture to people. But think about Noah. He was in a situation quite similar, it appears, that Peter was in, and I would even suggest even us, in the sense that here was Noah in the minority as one who trusted in God, a distinct minority. The scripture says about the people in Noah's day that the intentions of their hearts and the thoughts of their hearts were evil continuously. And here was Noah who found favor in the eyes of God. And so there was Noah listening to God, trusting God, and no one else was. And you get to sense, as Peter refers to those to whom he writes as sojourners in the world and exiles and aliens and strangers, that somehow they too felt, in the minority, they felt different uh, than everyone else. And it seemed too that in the days of Noah, judgment was right around the corner, that judgment was going to come. And yet it seemed that nobody really cared that judgment was going to come. In fact, Jesus speaks of, of these things as he talks about uh, his return. And he speaks about these things in the, in the days of Noah. Uh, and he speaks about them like this in Matthew chapter 24, in verse 34. He says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, none of which are really bad, by the way. It's all okay to eat and drink and marry. Uh, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The, the point isn't that all those things are bad. The point is that they just they didn't see That there was more than just their own gratification, their own self-gratification, their own lives to live. That there was someone, God, whom they had offended and, and, and they needed to be reconciled to him. And they just went along with life as if everything was fine and dandy and everything wasn't fine and dandy. And Noah was telling them by way of building this ark that God had communicated something concerning righteousness and judgment. Was in fact coming. And Peter says, even as we'll work through 1 Peter, the end of all things, he says, is near. Be careful, be cautious. But God was patient during the days of Noah, at least while the ark was being built. And Peter says as well in 2 Peter in chapter 3, this, verse 9. He says, the Lord is slow, is not slow to fulfill his promise. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done will be uh, exposed. He said, listen, right now, Peter is saying, there's a time of the patience of God, but a day will come when the patience will end. And that was true in the days of Noah. God was patient, but the day came when the patience of God was, was over, and that's when it started to rain, and that's when it started to see the to, the, the floodwaters come from even underneath the earth. And God says the same thing will happen. Peter says the same thing is happening right now. People aren't getting it. People aren't seeing it. People don't seem to be alarmed of the fact that God exists and God is holy and all of that, and a judgment day is coming, and yet they seem to be oblivious to all of that. Similar in the days of Noah, similar in the days of Peter, similar in our days as well, but during those days of Noah, Noah was heralding the gospel, for instance, in second Peter and chapter two, verse five, it says of Noah, well, first it says of God, and then tells says of Noah, if he that he is God, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the, wor- the world of the ungodly saying listen. Noah was a herald that is a proclaimer of righteousness by his very life as he trusted God to build the ark. All of this was screaming to the people, there's danger. Something's going to happen. God's going to bring something. There's danger. Listen up. Trust him. And so through all of this, Noah was heralding the gospel. And no doubt as he was heralding the gospel, indeed, he was suffering a measure. Could you imagine being the one guy Literally in all the earth, who was trusting God? You don't get good press. There's not a great deal of talk at the grocery store to you because you keep talking about the ark you're building and you're building it because judgment is coming. You're not a popular guy. Wonder what they said about him. Wonder the insults that he had to take. But yet, through all of this still, he continued to persevere and continue to preach. And Peter said, that's exactly the way it should be with us. You should set apart Christ the Lord, regard Christ the Lord as holy in your life. Nothing else is holy. Only Christ the Lord is holy. And when you do that, people will ask you about the hope that you have. And you'll be able to herald the gospel. But not only that, it seems, and I say seems because here we get to the weird stuff. It seems to me, I know others smarter than me, by the way, but it seems that while Noah was heralding the gospel, Jesus was proclaiming it through him. So that the spirits, as Peter would say, that are now in prison were the very people who were disobedient during the days of Noah. The very ones God was being patient with. And through Noah, Jesus was heralding righteousness. And I say that because of what Peter says in chapter 1, verse 11. You didn't think this was going to come easy, did you? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. Let me begin with verse 10. Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter is saying there that the prophets of old were able to predict the sufferings of Christ because it was the spirit of Christ in them who was making that proclamation, making those predictions. So if that could happen to the prophets, my suspicion is that what Peter is saying to us is that those spirits that are now in prison were the very people, spirits of those people, who were disobedient during the days of Noah. And it was then that Jesus preached to them through Noah. You don't have to agree with that, but did you at least follow that? Are we kind of... Come on, keep breathing with me. Is it not? All right. Now, some would think, and I'm not going to give you all the views I don't hold because that will just clutter your mind. Uh, uh, Some think that what this refers to is that between the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection, that Jesus descended into hell and proclaim something to the spirits in hell who were in prison. What he would have proclaimed to them isn't told to us, and I don't know. So since that's not my view, I just won't go any farther with it. But uh, it's the view of many great people. Uh, But I think what Peter is saying for encouragement concerning Noah is this. Listen, folks, you're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. And when you do, think about Noah. Think about the very fact that in history there was one time a person who really suffered for righteousness' sake. And he suffered for righteousness' sake in what appears to be the worst possible scenario, the only one in the whole place who was trying to follow after God. And God called him in a very special way. But remember, through Noah, the message still got out. Why? Because it was the Spirit of Christ in him who was heralding this righteousness. And God saved him. God was faithful to save him. So listen, when you're suffering for righteousness sake, remember this. That you may feel like you're in a minority, but there is someone in you who is making proclamation of the truth of righteousness through you, who is greater than all. And he is the one who will vindicate you. I've often thought the only bad thing about being Noah is when you got off the boat you couldn't say na-na-na-na-na-na that just just takes that all away but God will vindicate us as we speak of Christ we may be rejected as we live of Christ we may be insulted but never forget Noah because the truth is that vindication does come that Because Christ is in us, it really is true. And then, Peter jumps to baptism. And he says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this. So he's saying baptism, in some sense, is the fulfillment as a symbol of what was going on in the days of Noah. And then he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the question then first is, how, is, how does baptism correspond to what was going on in the days of Noah? The second question I'll ask is, how then does that save us? The third question I'll ask of this is, how does that encourage me? All right? That's where I'm headed. Got to get through this today because I don't want this to last another week. Because you may need this sometime this week. First, baptism corresponds to what went on in the days of Noah. Because baptism... You should be able to do this with me. Baptism is a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace. And God's covenant of grace is His promise wherein he promises to save all those who come to him in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You've heard me say that a million times, every time I baptize somebody. Baptism is a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace, and his covenant of grace is his promise, wherein he promises to save from what? From judgment. From the wrath of God. During the days of Noah, Noah, his wife three sons and their spouses eight in all were saved through this water and you see judgment came and water was a symbol and a reality of judgment for them but it was a symbol of salvation for Noah and a reality because when the water showed up it destroyed all that was wicked And it saved Noah and his family from that wickedness. Not only that, but since they were in the provision of God, the ark, they floated above it, and they were saved. And so the salvation that comes from trusting in the righteousness that is from Christ, saves. And for those who do not trust it, it destroys. It brings judgment. And so in that sense, baptism is very much corresponding or symbolic of that which took place in the the days of Noah. But then you say, well, then how does baptism save us? Peter says, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Well, how does it save us? Because we've always been taught that it doesn't. And Peter would agree with us that it doesn't save in an automatic kind of sense because he says this, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not a very important not not as a removal of dirt from the body that is, it's not automatic it's not like saving you because you put water on somebody or take them under it however you want to do that and thus they're saved from the judgment of God It isn't an automatic thing. It's not automatic like if you take some water on a sponge and and wipe some dirt on your hand, it goes away. Unless you're a seven-year-old boy, then you really have to scrub. But uh, it isn't like that. It's not an automatic kind of thing. That's not the deal. Baptism only saves when it's accompanied by what really saves, which is, he says, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ which is a very good translation. Whatever your version has here, this really, I think, is is the best translation. And that is, but as an appeal to God, not as a pledge, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is that? What does it mean to make an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus? It means that you're appealing to God to forgive your sins, so that your conscience can be cleansed, for instance, in Hebrews in chapter nine. In verse eleven, the scripture says this. I'm reminded of the time I called someone who'd been attending our church for a while and they weren't attending any longer, and I asked why, and the person said, because you people think too hard. <laughs> so I hope I'm not driving anybody away today, but this is just sort of the passage that we're in, and so we have to think very hard today. So I don't know what that means exactly, but anyway, I don't know why you wouldn't want to think hard about God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So what the author of Hebrews here is doing is he's saying that if you think about the Old Testament where priests would kill animals rather than people, kill animals, take the blood of the animals, and go and sprinkle it in various places and on various things, but not the least of which once a year on the, in the most holy place, on the seat of the Ark, which was the mercy seat of God. And, and that would be so that people would have some sense of assurance that their sins were forgiven for that year until you did it again said, but Jesus did it more completely. Jesus took his own blood into what we could picture as a heavenly holy of holies and sprinkled it before God once and for all, never to have been to, to do again. And he says, that secures an eternal covenant. Verse 13, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify, or cleanse, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, the work of Christ cleanses our conscience. Why? Because he isn't a goat. He's a person. And there's a sense in which a person can stand for us much better than a goat. Not only that, but we know him to be the Son of God, which means he's worth us all. Not only that, he takes his blood, the, the infinite, valuable blood of Christ, and he he brings it not on some some thing we've made with our hands, some tents and a box, but he takes it into the heavenlies to God himself. And not only that, he comes back from the dead; he's resurrected. And his resurrection, you see, proves to us. That first he didn't die for his own sins. Because if he had died for his own sins, he'd still be being punished. He'd still be dead. But since he didn't die for his sins, once he's made payment, then he's free to go. And when he's free to go, he's able to announce it was accepted. And then we see him and we see this very one, the Son of God and he says the sacrifice was accepted and we say, what does that mean? He said, it means you're forgiven, really forgiven don't I need to do something? no don't I need to make penance? no won't, be there, won't there be a time after I die that I'll have to go through this stage of sanctification and purification? no, why? because you're forgiven of sins, why? because Jesus paid, how do I know? he rose from the dead and so you see when we come to God and appeal to him to have a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus who is saying cleanse me Uh, chapter 10 of Hebrews verse 19 therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a great priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Our conscience is, is clean. Now you see, baptism in and of itself doesn't save. It's just water symbolizing something, pointing us to something. But it's a sign and a seal. As a sign, it points as a seal. It means the promise is authentic. The promise is from God. It's not the kind of seal uh, when you seal something in a jar. It's the kind of seal that's, that's, that's like um, the seal of the United States. If you want to get something that's really official from the government, it's got to have a seal on it, and you go, okay, that's official. Um, or in the old days when. when uh, When you would seal a letter with your own particular stamp on it, that was the seal of the governor or the seal of your employer. And you said, that's really the seal of God that says this promise is authentic, is baptism. So when we look at baptism, we go, yes, there really is cleansing. There really is salvation from sins. And this is the symbol that God has used, God has given to us to say, yeah, this is really true. But in and of itself, it doesn't save. But when it's accompanied by, an appeal to God that says, my conscience is not clear. I know I've sinned against you. I appeal through the resurrection of Jesus, the very one who went through the curtain and dropped his own blood and rose from the dead, through the resurrection of Jesus, I appeal on that basis. Then our conscience, you see, is cleared. And that's the sense in which baptism saves. So, in the Old Testament... When Abraham would circumcise and the children, the fathers, Israelite fathers would circumcise their eight day old boys, it did not save them. But when, at a particular point in time, there was an appeal to God for a clear conscience and God was believed in, and then their circumcision saved. And when I baptize a baby, that baptism doesn't save that child. But when? at a particular moment in time, that child, young adult, appeals to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus that baptism saves. And when I baptize a believer someone who makes a profession of faith and never been baptized before, and I baptize the believer in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That water doesn't save that person. That event doesn't save that person. But if there is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus, and that coupled with that baptism, whatever it happened, that baptism saves. You see? And so we're to think about that. Or to think about the fact that when we're suffering for righteousness' sake, it isn't that we've displeased God and he's punishing us. We can look to baptism and say, no, no, no. The punishment fell upon Jesus. This isn't punishment. This is blessing. And the reason that it's blessing is because Peter goes on to say that Jesus has been enthroned, that everything is subjected to him. And so we know that even when this suffering comes to us, it doesn't come to us randomly. It comes to us through the very hands of Jesus. And then he goes on to say, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We know that Jesus has suffered in the flesh. So in what sense has he ceased from sin? in the sense that once he's suffered in the flesh for our sins, he's done with it. He's paid it. He's broken its power. That's all he has to do with it. It's done now for him. But it also ceases, this sin, in us, because we're united to him. And a decisive break with sin has occurred when we believe because, you see, its penalty is taken and its power is broken. But have you ever wondered, in the context of your own life, is that really true? Is the power of sin really broken in the context of your own life? And one of the difficulties of living in nice America is is that sometimes it's hard to know whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you're just a follower of being good and living a nice life. But let me tell you this. When you suffer for righteousness' sake, that is evidence that you 're a believer in Christ, because it says, "For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of god that 's one moment in time that you can say, "Yes, of course it 's really true because I really." Would rather be insulted for the sake of Christ than to live for my own passions than to live for what otherwise would give me pleasure I must say I admire the preachers of old Kyrnoz gets nervous when I talk like this who were thrown into prison for preaching the gospel because when they would suffer there they would at least have a great sense of assurance that yes, they were preaching the gospel not for their own ego. They were preaching the gospel not because they were affirmed. They were preaching the gospel, not because things went well for them and they made a good living and all of that, but they would know at that moment they were preaching the gospel because they loved Christ and it was right and they were willing to suffer. And when they do, they know at that moment in time yes, it is true, the power of sin has been broken, the penalty of sin has been paid and and I can see it working in the context of my own life. And that, you see, is the blessing of suffering for righteousness' sake because it affirms in your own heart yes, I'm not living for my own desires and passions but I'm living for the will of God I'll let you figure out the rest don't be afraid to live for Christ no matter what it costs no matter what he calls you to because there's nothing that will be a greater blessing in the context of your own heart to look at Noah and say, yes, Noah, I get it, I understand what it's like to be in that circumstance and be vindicated. It's, it's, it's Grab a hold of baptism and your baptism and say, yes, united to Christ, it saves. And thus I know I'm not suffering for my own sins because Jesus did that and I'm free and the power has been broken and it's penalty paid, and to know that when you suffer, that it's evidence to you that you have ceased from following your own desires and now live for the will of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray for me and for us that we would not fear standing firm for Christ's sake. I pray that you would grant to us increasingly opportunities to do so. And you would provide for us the grace to affirm that in us Christ will speak and he will herald his righteousness and he will draw others to himself through it and that he will vindicate us and that we will be blessed with the assurance of knowing that we do belong we do belong to you through our dear Savior. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there are elders available to pray. In the office area, please take uh, advantage of that. The response to the benediction is Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Understanding that he's Lord, understanding that he, everything is subject to him. Uh, is the, the rest in terms of peace of our whole life so please receive this as God's benediction now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy to only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ whom be glory, dominion, majesty, power both now and forevermore and all God's people said Jesus is Lord